This is a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. You're listening to Beyond the Ballot Box with me, Dafran Yohan. Public housing has been an important aspect of Malaysian development for decades as it is viewed as a means to improve the quality of life of the low-income population. While public housing in Malaysia has undergone several transformations over the years, it still faces numerous challenges, including poor living conditions, inadequate maintenance, and ironically, issues with affordability too. Badrul Hisham, who's a policy researcher, has written a paper for Think City called From Public Housing to Public Homes, which takes a look at the evolution of Malaysian public housing policies, lessons we can learn from it, and where we can go from here. He joins me on the show today to unpack this. Welcome to the show, Badrul. How are you? I'm good. Thank you for having me. How are you? I'm doing good as well. Very eager to dive into this topic with you. Um, but before we get into the nitty-gritty, let's get some terminologies out of the way first. What's the difference between affordable housing in general and public housing? So affordable housing is basically just you know uh, houses that are made to be affordable to be owned uh, by different categories of uh, the society, uh, the income group. They will be for B40, they'll be for M40 as well. They have different rates, they have different pricing for each different categories. Uh, one example is Prima. They are sort of, some are owned and developed by the government, some are by the private uh, developers, but most of the time they are sort of in collaboration between the two, by the government right. or the private developers to, to, to provide affordable housing. Um, but public housing, uh, is basically houses that are made through public funds, hence the name public housing, right. which is owned by the state, uh, uh, the government, uh, either federal level or the state level, uh, and only catering, at least in the Malaysian case, only catering for the, the, the poor. Right. So now that we've got those terminologies out of the way, um, I really like you know how the first section of your paper touches on urbanization trends in Malaysia and how we have one of the fastest urbanization rates in the region. Um, talk to me a little bit about this and why this is important to get a better understanding of our public housing situation. The main thing is that because the housing policy uh, in the country developed in tandem with the urban policy. Uh, so we cannot really separate uh, the building of houses with urbanization. Probably like the urbanization is the sort of the bigger umbrella and housing development is put under that. Um, and indeed, like you said, we are one of the fastest urbanizing country. Uh, by this time, it's probably, we probably almost for 80% of Malaysians right. live in urban centers already. But it doesn't mean that everybody's moving into the center. But right. because it also means that other places that used to be rural area have become urbanized, either mm. in terms of uh, demographic uh, population number or even sort of certain level of uh, infrastructures and public goods have been developed in the in those area. Um, and the development has been going quite rapidly compared to um, a lot of um, developed or first world country. But this is a trend to, uh, with a lot of the global south country where the development has been quite rapid in the past few decades, sort of the catching up process that you know a lot of countries post-independence right. have been going through. Uh, but the thing is, we are even faster than countries in the region we're faster than right. Indonesia we're faster than Thailand uh, and you know other other countries in Southeast Asia as well with urbanization a lot of wealth has been accumulated a lot of people has been have been sort of de- uh, benefited 
from living in a in a sort of urbanized society, but it also means that we are becoming more complex. Urban society, which is what we are now, means that we are dealing with issues that we weren't really dealing with when we were just a rural society. Um, right. Both, I mean, in, uh, economically, socially, and politically. Um, and one of the main issues that uh, have been, you know, on the rise that sort of, for, for some reason, <laughs> um, it sort of goes in tandem with urbanization processes, mm-hmm. uh, inequality. Right. Uh, and not just from an economic issue, but also political and social inequality. And the more people are living together in close proximity, the more competition for resources, the more competition between different segments of society, which include competition for housing. And if we're not making the city more inclusive, which is what we are sort of trying to sort of push for in the paper, uh, a bigger part of the population will be left out, sort of and widening the inequality gap, which in turn will make the urban centers and our cities more unsustainable. Right. Um, and we can see this in the public housing um, issue because of we are sort of neglecting uh, the community in public housing. Inequality is is on the rise, and uh, you know the years of development achieve, achievement that we've or development that we've achieved um, over the past few decades has been sort of being undone if we continue to neglect. What I really like about your paper is how you talked about the evolution of our housing policies over the years. Um, talk to me about the period in between our independence in, in 1957 up until the 80s. What was our housing policies over that period? Um, so immediately after the post-independence, we just continued. Uh, there was this uh, body called the Housing Trust Federation, which is set up even before uh, independence. Uh, and it was focusing more on uh, providing homes for the rural areas. Um, this sort of happened until mid-60s where the the first urban migration or sort of the first mass urban migration started to happen in Malaysia. Uh, and that's when we start to shift the focus to, to provide more homes in the urban centers. And this is where uh, a lot of the uh, public housing or the strata public housing, the earlier or the first uh, ones were built. Uh, like, uh, like in Sri Petaling, uh, or in, uh, in Penang, uh, you know. So these are like the first generation of public housing, strata public housing were built uh, around this time. Uh, and then after 16, 1969, with the introduction of NEP, it was sort of continued, uh, more focusing on, uh, the urban poor this time. Uh, and, uh, also giving more, uh, sort of responsibility to state level, government to sort of provide their own uh, public housing uh, as well. But mostly the funds still come from, from the federal government. It's just implementation and management is sort of relegated to uh, state level as well. Uh, right. And this is sort of continued as part of NEP. So it, is, it all you know comes together with the Malaysia plan as well, um, right. all the way to the, to the 80s. So in the early 90s, as you pointed out in your paper, was when the Malaysian government took a very different approach to develop housing, and that is to privatize. So two interesting things stand out to me about this particular period. On a global level, the Cold War was coming to an end. Left movements all over the world were getting crushed. And then on a local level, Tun Dr. Mahade became Prime Minister of Malaysia. 
What changed about our public housing policy in this period? Well, neoliberalism took over the world. Um, <laughs> and Malaysia, you know, took part of that. Uh, we right. started in the 80s, uh, pretty much when you know, Tumade became prime minister. With, with that idea came this false idea that the private market can deal with our social woes, which include housing. You know. So right. really at that time, the Malaysian government sort of took a step back in uh, building new public housing. Probably they were just maintaining whatever they were already uh, built by them, but then they really left uh, the, the, the housing to the private market. Uh, and this is where the time you see the least development of public housing in Malaysia, which continued all the way to, to like the late 90s. The responsibility to maintain and create public goods is being shifted from the government, which are elected by the people, to private entity. Uh, it became an industry where people can make profit out of it rather than an industry that is just to provide the goods uh, without right. you know, a big profit behind it. So I guess that sort of influenced how government was were thinking at the time. That's definitely how Malaysian government was thinking at the time. The idea of just catching up with developed country to be first world country also had the idea that we have to let go of uh, a lot of the socialist uh, or so socialistic policies, uh, which include housing. So what's and the consequences of that? The consequences is that later on, <laughs> uh, decades after, when we really saw that, you know, houses are becoming more unaffordable. And in Malaysia, I think the financial crisis really sort of opened up uh, some kind of, uh, you know, uh, awareness for both, you know, people and the government. So some measure were reintroduced after the financial crisis. But really, it made housing unaffordable. And we haven't really learned much from that. I mean, now we have those, uh, un those affordable housing scheme, uh, which instead of trying to sort of control pricing and all that, but it's still really private developers led. Malaysian government still don't take charge of building houses. They are just support. They are just, you know, giving, uh, financial support to people to own homes rather than really taking charge and controlling, uh, the industry, controlling the, the, the pricing and all that. So the issue of affordability, we're still dealing with it now, even more so. In your paper, you also talk about a very interesting period. Um, you, you sort of um, called it the slum clearance and state affordable housing. Could you expand on this a little bit for me? What does that mean? Uh, this is really what happened after the financial crisis, uh, mm -hmm. after 97. Uh, there were more effort to, to house people who were not living in formal housing, people who are living in informal riverine area, especially in, in KL, in Klang Valley. Um, so a few schemes were created uh, to sort of to house people who didn't have formal housing to put them in a more proper, um, you know, uh, well-built building. Um, but it was also meant to be transitory housing. Uh, so there are a few public housing in the Klang Valley area where the idea was actually to house people who was who were living in slums and living in informal housing for a few years until they can afford to get their own homes or relocated to a, a to a non-public housing complex um so this time it was not just the federal government but also state government especially the slum state government came up with their own scheme of public housing during this period 
Right. One of the sentences that really stood out to me is that, you know, and I quote, Malaysia has a successful history of providing access to public housing and reducing urban slums. However, there is a significant risk of public housing turning into vertical slums. And indeed, it does feel like we are already there, right, Badrol? I mean, in many places, public housing does feel like rotting and, and decaying high-rise slums. Um, you write that Malaysia is now in a critical juncture. What's critical about this juncture? And how have we let it you know, become this way? So it was successful in a way that we were able to give formal housing to a lot of people who didn't have informal housing at that time. Right. Uh, especially the, 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 the slum community and all that. Mm -hmm. But the danger that we are facing now is that this housing that they have been living for quite a few decades, that it was initially to be a transitory housing, and not just this type of public housing, but also the rest of public housing. Uh, the, the, the danger that we are facing now is that they are becoming poverty trap because of the years of neglect. Right. Uh, because it was built, it, they, it was given to them, but there were no uh, robust plan on sustainability. There were no robust plan in proper management of the building to make sure it doesn't you know, dilapidate and all that. And it doesn't come with economic programs that can alleviate their economic status. So if things continue as usual, it will become a poverty trap. And that's what the danger is. And COVID-19 have shown, have exposed the vulnerability of this community and uh, the lack of social security that they have and the lack of ability to deal with shocks. Right. And this is what happened for the past few years with, with them you know, living under the lockdown and all that. They are the first one to lose their jobs. They are the first one who are unable to buy uh, goods for their family. And even within it, during the lockdown, they are the ones who, you know, uh, the infection probably higher among them. Because if you look at the uh, extended MCO areas, a lot of them are in, in houses, in housing area where it's cramped and, you know, in less affluent neighborhoods. And this is the risk that we are at, the danger that we are at. And this, and, you know, the critical juncture that we are talking about, if nothing, is being done to change the course of condition of the community right now, then we are going to create, uh, you know, what we call ghettos and what we call slums again, uh, and all right. those years of, uh, that we've sort of gained from, you know, um, moving them into proper housing, all those years of development, of childhood development, all that are going to be, to be gone because of the direction that we are going at at the moment. On the show with me today is Badrul Hisham Ismail, co-author of From Public Housing to Public Homes, published by Think City. After the break, I ask him why aren't our public housing as good as Singapore's? Keep it here on Beyond the Ballot Box, BFM 89.9. Welcome back to Beyond the Ballot Box. I'm Darshan Johan and on the show with me today is Badrol Hisham. He's a public policy researcher and we are talking about the evolution of public housing in Malaysia. So Badrol, what is it about our policy that, you know, that the intent of the policy, okay, let's build PPR flats, let's build these public housings are obviously very good and we need more of that, right? We need more robust um, policies like that. But why is it that once these buildings are, you know, erected, people move in and then it feels like not, then it's just hands off, right? It's just like these buildings are left there and after a period of 10 years, sometimes when we go, it, it li literally just looks like it hasn't been painted once. Cars are parked all over the place. Like one of my friends used to live in a PPR flat and 
she used to say how like at night um you know or in the morning like if you park at night somewhere in the morning your car is somewhere else everybody will just leave their handbrakes down because the cars are all over the place so they like you know neighbors will just push cars around and and, and things like that and and it sounds you know just mind boggling right what is it about our policy that you know sometimes the implementation the ideas are good and then the follow up is just not there well to be honest this is one of the things that we are still trying to figure out in detail right. what where are the gaps in terms of policies and where are the gaps in right. terms of implementation? But from what we can see now, there are a few things that, that, that we can sort of improve upon. The first thing is the overall planning of the urban centers. There's a lack of integration of the public housing complex into the wider uh, urban built environment. Okay. Some, of the, uh, some of the public housing that were built, uh, the, the early generations that were really, you know, in the smack of in the, in, in, in the city, benefit in terms of them being part of the urban uh, environment. Right. They are connected to a lot of other public goods. They are connected to, uh, they have access to uh, places of transportation, public transportation, for example. They are not isolated from the neighborhood. But some others that are sort of later built don't have that um, advantage. In fact, they were put in a disadvantage where they were in a location where they were built. They are isolated mm-hmm. from um, the neighboring community, uh, there are no proper planning in terms of how to, you know, have a public transportation to go there. Uh, it's expected they, that they, that they uh, have to drive to or have their own vehicle to go to work. Uh, they are not even put in a place where it's easy for them to find jobs. So there's a lack of that. And at the same time, there's a lack of long-term um, sustainable management system. Right. Um, and this is where we are really trying to figure out the best practice or the best way to uh, to create a sort of a co-management uh, system where residents can get more involved with the with the day-to-day management of the their complexes and have more say in what how the place is going to be run. Uh, because right now it's in the sort of a uh, bureaucracy kind of uh, loop where. If there's a problem, you have to report, and then the report will go somewhere, and it goes somewhere, right. and then you go to a third party, and go, you know. So instead of the resident themselves can, okay, there's something wrong here, we can immediately fix it. Mm-hmm. Although there were, there are some initiatives by specific groups that live in uh, some complexes to take charge, where they somehow were able to have kind of some kind of agreement with the management that they will take charge of their own block. For example, if there's a lighting problem, they can immediately change it, and then. Uh, the management have some kind of uh, understanding that they will uh, help uh, or give sort of financial uh, support for all that, but not it's, it's not a common practice in every uh, public housing complexes. It's more of an right. exception than norm. So these are the things that we're really trying to figure out where are the gaps because I mean it will take time for for us to really look into it. But you know, the idea is to actually to really look into it now and at the same time you know uh, suggest some kind of a uh, you know intervention that can be with short term and uh, you know see long term how we can sort of undo this uh, any mistake that we've done and try to reform things so that people's life can get better i'm curious um Badro, there is a stigma associated to public housing in malaysia the middle class um, often looks down on people living in public housing as uneducated dirty oh this is the gangster area and, and so on and so forth why is there a stigma? Because when we look at Singapore, nobody looks at HDB flats that way. In fact, 75% to 80% of Singaporeans live in HDB flats. 
there's no stigma whatsoever. When you look, you don't know who's the rich. Unless you look at their cars, you don't know who's rich and who's poor. Oh, and and a car or not. What, but why is it that, um, be, you know, our, is it because our, our PPR flats are, are rotting away or is it something much deeper than that in which our public housing policies have only amplified the class divide? The, the lack of good quality, uh, uh, you know, affordable, uh, private affordable housing, the growth of uh, gated communities, et cetera, et cetera. You know, you have a rotting public PPR flat here. You look to your left and there's a gated community full of bungalows. The stigma is the norm in a lot of countries, uh, mm-hmm. not just in Malaysia, of course. Uh, and Singapore is one of the exceptions, actually. Right. And this has to do with, you know, earlier on when, Singapore became an independent country. There was a p- quid pro quo between the government and the people. People were unsure that they can survive in a, such a small country at the, at a time where, you know, big nations are the other thing, big, big mm-hmm. states are the thing, not small city states. The main thing was the Singapore government took charge of housing for the citizens and for their residents, for the permanent residents as well, not just for right. uh, citizens. Um, and this is the big difference between Singapore and a lot of other countries where the government took full responsibility to provide homes for everyone, which gave them, gave them power to control everything uh, in terms of pricing, in terms of uh, construction, in terms of quality and all that, which a lot of other countries don't when they leave it to the hands of for-profit developers. When it comes to stigma, and speaking of class divide, you're saying and that's what the new liberal economy does, you know, and they feed people with, you know, the idea of having living in a gated society, big lawn and all that. But from a housing perspective, all that did is just create a huge sprawl. And Malaysia is just a huge sprawl if you look at it. You know, everyone live in like two story building with yards, uh, and you just have to drive everywhere. Right. It takes a lot of space and it's really a not efficient way of having urban community because you need complex housing so that you can save space and you can have more public goods that you can share. And even that, the development of public goods will be more affordable if people are not that scattered around. You know, just look at our MRT. It's too far to go to the houses. And you probably you get to the first row of the house. You, you, you can't get to the 10th row of the house because it's going to cost so much. You're just going to skip. People are sort of really living in debt, really. We're not really... You don't really own the house anyways if you buy them. Well, you know, it, it'll take like a few decades for us to own it. Right. And now they are even, you know, proposing intergenerational loan. So your kids will still have to Yeah. Um and with uh, more population growth, uh, more you know, scarcity in terms of resources, then different groups of community are going to be even more pitted against each other. And this is the, just the stigma, the, 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 the class divide are all coming from this. Our idea of success means that being poor is shameful. Being poor is almost a crime, if not a crime already. You know, talking about stigma, then you will definitely stigmatize the poor. And people who live in public housing in Malaysia are people who cannot afford to own their own house. So the stigma right. is being thrown at them. And then at the same time, it's, you know, poorly managed and then you see the dilapidation they say see this is why we cannot live in this housing this is why we cannot leave uh to you know government or you know to the public sector to deal with this housing because it's going to be terrible and all that whereas if we really take charge of it then those places are not going to be dilapidated those places can be 
you have you in fact you can have more say of your own housing if it, right. it is truly a public housing. Have there been any measures um, taken to ensure that public housing is inclusive and promote social cohesion in Malaysia? Um, for example, when we look at Singapore, right, in terms of uh, public housing, it is generally considered as sort of the gold standard. And we know that they have taken um, sort of um, steps to address the issues of social cohesion and inclusivity, um, inequality and, and things like that. For example, um, I think at one point they had said when they designed their HDB flats, they don't put, let's say, five um, bedroom HDBs directly beside two bedroom HDBs. They will sort of cushion it with a three bedroom HDBs in the middle so that the class divide is not as obvious. I, and I think, believe like even racial quotas they have um, like, you know, in each um, um, area, you like, you know, 60% of the units are for X-rays, 30% for X-rays, 10% for X-rays, so on and so forth. Now, I'm not saying that these are all measures that we want or necessarily agree with, or even if they are good policies, right, overall. But what I'm saying is there are measures taken or steps taken to sort of promote social cohesion and inclusivity. Are there any measures taken here in Malaysia? To compare with Singapore, Singapore is a bit heavy-handed in terms of uh, dealing with social cohesion. It's sort of, sort of forced right. social Think, cohesion yes. rather than sort of so. organic. So we definitely don't have anything that to that extent. And we probably don't want anything to that extent, you know, having a nanny state and all that kind of stuff. But to say that there's an absolute lack of effort, you know, just by looking at the situation, it doesn't surprise if people think that there's no plan at all in terms of on, on the Malaysian side to sort of promote the social cohesion. What we see now is, that is it, it differs from case to case, from each complex to each complex. Uh, certain uh, public housing that has been around for quite some time where the neighborhood uh, and the, the residents don't really change much. There are some kind of more social cohesion among themselves. Uh, but then there's also the, you know, uh, the resident association and then the Rukututanga, some play more role in, in, in terms of the, the social life of the residents. Some places don't really have, don't really play that, don't, the, 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 RA and the RT don't really play that much big of a role. So it, it really differs from uh, one complex to another rather than a whole a systematic program for, for all complexes that, uh, that they all practice. And this is something that we really want to explore more in terms of building more cohesion and not just cohesion, but also social capital among the residents as well. And how that can be built sort of organically and led by the residents themselves rather than sort of a top-down approach. You also talk about how in Austria, the Social Democratic Workers' Party governed the city and, and undertook one of the most ambitious and successful social housing programs ever. What can you tell me about this program? What can Malaysia learn from it? Vienna, the city specifically, not the, the entire country. Uh, right benefit from a socialist government, I would say, <laughs> who really took charge of uh, right. you know, uh, public goods. And first, they really control the private housing market as well. They don't just control public housing, but they control private housing in terms of making sure that uh, the rent is controlled, uh, eviction is under control. Uh, you know, uh, private owners can't just easily evict uh, people. Um, and they make it in such a way that the private development industry is not that lucrative 
that people mm. are not really trying to make big profit out of it, which means that they don't have any competitor, which means the, the municipal itself have more control in the construction and the development of the buildings, which give them a sort of an upper hand to, to build up, basically. Right. So that's the, one of the big elements that, that, that they, they, they put. And that thing was put like years ago, like decades, probably even before uh, World War II. So it's mm. it's an old policy that they that, that they that they sort of implemented. On top of that, they built the housing as part of the bigger urban environment. So this idea of an isolated community, an idea of you can tell, oh, this is poor neighborhood, this is rich neighborhood. They don't really have to. They don't really suffer that 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 kind of um, stigma because everything is built in relation to one another. So you can't really. Um, sort of enclaves that we always fear of when it comes right. to slums and ghettos and all that. That doesn't really happen in Vienna because it's it's being designed as part of the bigger urban environment. You can barely tell the difference between people, rich people and poor neighborhoods because of that kind of idea in planning. And of course, maintenance. Uh, sort of, so every year, there's always an earmark uh, budgeting for the maintenance of the public housing, uh, which, interestingly, in Asia we have that. It's just a matter of how the money is being implemented, uh, right. the management of the funds and all that. Right. Um, but what's interesting with Vienna is that the city itself have control with the uh, not just I mean the construction, as I was saying, but also the management and the development. So it's not a big federal government that has to deal with a lot of things. So things will slip somewhere but it's sort of more localized and you can you know uh, pay more attention you know all that kind of things and the benefit of a local strong local government which we don't really have here unfortunately right so with all of that in mind Badrul where do we go from here you you know we've talked about um, the evolution of our, our housing policies we've, we've you know like tried to look at a couple of case studies from other countries where do we go from here? How do we make public housing in Malaysia better, more sustainable? And how do we make public housing in Malaysia like sort of a, a number one choice or at least like a choice that people want to live? Like, like you know, maybe next time and I have children or whatever, you know, like my kids grow up and they're like, yeah, I, I want to stay in a PPR flat. Like, you know, it's a public housing. That's that's great. Like, there's no stigma. There's whatever. It's meant for everyone. You know, that that sort of thing. Is, is that even a point where we we want to aim to get towards? Like, like becomes like a Singapore where seventy percent of the population want to stay in public housing and and, and so on and so forth. Uh, how do you see it? And uh, where do we go from here? In the report, we came up with a few recommendations. Uh, right. But basically, the main thing that for me at least, uh, there are two main issues here. One is of poverty, mm -hmm. and one is of housing. Right. So when it comes to poverty, we really need to continue and strengthen and expand, um, you know, poverty alleviating uh, programs, more right. social security, uh, things like universal basic income always come to mind for me, uh, and other sort of economic incentives so that you know people can uh, better off themselves, sort of go through the ladder of economic status and get out of poverty, and you know, uh, not being trapped in poverty basically. And the second thing is about housing. Um, and of course, you cannot take away public housing from the bigger housing policy. 
Um, and for me, the fundamental thing is that we have to recognize first that housing is a basic fundamental right that everyone should have. It's not something that should be led by profiteers. Uh, it shouldn't be something that, um, you know, be put in the hands of uh, the private so that they can uh, turn into asset. They can, um, you know, sort of the idea of financialization of the housing market and all that. It should, it's public goods. Everybody needs a home. If you don't have a home, you cannot have right. a decent and dignified life. So unless we recognize that, then none of the other policies can can sort of be geared towards that uh, recognition, right? So we need to, you know, uh, recognize it as a right and then make sure that everybody have it and, you know, make sure that everybody have equal access and uh, can, it's not just a matter of afford. We have a right to have a house. Absolutely. It's a human yeah. right. Yes, exactly. I think we need a we need a major philosophical shift at least. Mm-hmm. That then the policy can be, you know, we can we can create policy within the right. idea of of that everybody should have homes. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's just like having clean water. We don't make you know crazy profits from selling clean water because we know that we cannot live without it. Then right. we should treat houses the same as that. And yes, like you said, the idea of people living in public housing, I think that's the way forward. We need to strengthen and expand public housing, make sure it's you know attractive enough for people to move into it, and make sure it's sustainable enough that it will sustain for generations to come and not just you know a few years and then everything starts to fall apart. Because then housing is really not just for the one that are privileged or the one that can afford it, it's really for everyone. Absolutely. And on that note, thank you so much for joining me today, Badrul. Thank you. That was Badrul Hisham Ismail. He's a policy researcher who has written a paper for Think City called From Public Housing to Public Homes. If you missed any part of our conversation, you can also check us out on podcasts. We're available on the BFM app, bfm.my, or pretty much wherever you get your podcasts from. I'm Dashan Johan, and this has been Beyond the Ballot Box, BFM 89.9. You have been listening to a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. For more stories of the same kind, download the BFM app.